Welcome back to the Foreign Desk Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Deftari. Today we have with us one of the most uh, well-recognized and well-informed uh, foreign policy and national security um, analysts out there. My good friend, senior editor-at-large at Breitbart, Joel Pollack. Thank you so much for joining us, Joel. Thanks, Lisa. I know you're um, short on time today, so I want to cut right to it. I, I brought you on today because of your very unique perspective at watching all of this, being the head of a very large media organization, and more than anything, keeping an eye on what's going on in our nation and how that has evolved over the last four years. More specifically, I want to talk about your new book, Neither Fair Nor Free, which discusses the um, alleged fraud that took place in this most recent election. Um, on Amazon, I like the first line of the description of the book, which says, the U.S. presidential election in 2020 was distorted in ways that made it very difficult, if not impossible, for President Donald J. Trump to win re-election. What do you mean by that? Well, in the book, Neither Free Nor Fair, I zoom out from the question of voter fraud. We still have people looking into questions about whether ballots were switched from one candidate to another and that sort of thing. I don't know that we'll ever really know the answer to that. It's very difficult to figure out what's true and what isn't. But if you take a look at the election as a whole, what's very clear is that this was not a free and fair election, starting with the fact that the rules for voting were changed in many states during the course of the election. We moved to a vote by mail system in many states that had never done it before. And vote by mail suits the Democrats turnout model. It also suits their picture of the world, right? The Democrats said that the coronavirus pandemic was so terrible that we had to stay in our homes. We have to close our lives down. We have to shut our businesses. We have to wear masks all the time. And that suits their view of the world. Republicans said, no, this is a very serious pandemic, but we have to manage through it. We have to live our lives as best we can. We have to open up the economy as soon as possible. We have to be willing to take some risk to keep our society going. And Republicans insisted on voting in person. So the Republicans turned out voters, 75 million of them, but the Democrats turned out envelopes. And Envelopes are easier to turn out than voters. So the change in rules halfway through was a major factor. But there were other things as well. The Democrats carried out a nationwide campaign of political violence. That's what you can call the Black Lives Matter riots over the spring and summer. And they called them peaceful protests when they weren't. Now, only a small percentage were violent, but all you need is a small percentage. There were riots in 48 out of 50 major American cities this year. That's not an environment in which you can really have a free and fair election. You have an election, but you have to be able to say to both sides, condemn the violence. Both sides have to be able to say, we reject violence. Only one side said it. The Republicans rejected violence. Democrats didn't. They tried to cover it up. The media helped them. And that gets to another factor. The media bias in this election was absolutely extreme. The media didn't cover the news. The media were determined to push Donald Trump out of office. And we saw that with the censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop story, completely unprecedented in American history. The idea that this story, which is directly relevant to questions of corruption, questions of foreign influence, questions of honesty, because Joe Biden had lied earlier and said he didn't know anything about his son's business interests. These are relevant questions to the electorate, but the media, the tech companies, they shut these stories down. They punished people for sharing articles, sharing links to the New York Post, and they did it, again, because they wanted to get Trump out of office. So almost every single factor in this election that was tilted to one side was tilted against Trump and tilted in extraordinary ways. I mean, these are not the kinds of interventions we normally see in elections. 
So that's what I look at. I don't get into so much the question of whether there were observers allowed in the room and all that sort of thing. That's interesting, but I don't think we've yet seen the kind of proof of fraud. We've seen irregularities. We've seen conditions that could have allowed fraud to happen theoretically. We haven't seen proof yet. But again, if you want to see what's wrong with this election, you have to pan out a little bit from some of the claims of, of voter fraud that are going on. Democrats essentially succeeded in manipulating the environment around this election to make it very, very difficult for Trump to win. It changed the rules so that practices that might have been fraudulent or unacceptable in previous elections were now going to be accepted. And the media helped them. The media were a big part of this. So that's what I write about in my book. And now we're seeing it all play out in Georgia. I know uh, people are going to the polls already. Many have voted already in Georgia, but there's this runoff for the two Senate seats on January 5th. And Republicans currently hold those two seats. If the Democrats win both races, the Senate will be 50-50 under a Democratic administration. That means Democrats control the Senate. And the consequences will be profound for national security policy, but also for every other policy. And Republicans right now don't seem to be in the best position to win these seats. It's a little bit strange because the Republican candidates are actually pretty good. Every candidate has weaknesses, but the Republican candidates are experienced incumbents. They have experience in the business world. They have a wide rate, a variety of exposure to different issues and so forth. I mean, they're classic political candidates. The Democrats are very, very poor candidates. John Ossoff running against David Perdue. He's never held political office before, and he's never really succeeded at much of anything before. He is a young guy who inherited a lot of money, who bought his way into a film production company that worked with some overseas governments and things like that. Just, just very shady. On the other side, you've got uh, Raphael Warnock challenging Kelly Leffler. Raphael Warnock, a reverend in the Jeremiah Wright mold, radical views, radical rhetoric, anti-American stuff, racial stuff, really just unqualified, was uh, arrested for obstruction, uh, obstructing an investigation into child abuse at a, at a camp that he was involved with. I mean, the Democratic candidates are terrible, but the Democratic turnout machine is magnificent. I mean, they've basically figured out how to game the rules in Georgia. They steamrolled the Republican officials in Georgia and got them to agree to these consent agreements that allow Democrats to do basically whatever they want and prevent a lot of the safeguards that normally keep out fraud from an election. So Democrats basically are doing exactly what they did in November. They're going to turn out as many envelopes as they can. And the social media companies, the tech giants, they're suppressing traffic from conservative news websites about the Georgia election. And Republicans, meanwhile, are having this pointless internal battle over establishment versus right. Trump supporters. And there's this anger and hostility toward the Republican state officials in Georgia who didn't run a very good election. All of that's understandable, but those people aren't on this ballot. There are uh, a large number of Republicans on social media who say that they're going to sit out the Georgia election right. to fight the GOP establishment and send them a message. Well, great, but you're going to lose the country. And that's going to have significant impacts on national security and foreign policy, especially as Joe Biden and his team have said they want to undo as much of the Trump legacy as possible. So there's a lot at stake in Georgia. Unfortunately, Democrats have a very clear idea of what they want to do and how to execute it. Republicans fighting with each other, still looking back to November, not looking ahead to the task in January. They have better candidates and they have more at stake, really, because if Democrats win the Senate, Republicans will lose control of their ability to hold the administration accountable. They can't stop Joe Biden's appointees from going through. And they can't stop Joe Biden from doing a lot of the other radical things that Democrats have planned. So a lot at stake for Republicans, but right now, just not the right sense of mission, I think. President Trump's going to be going there on, on uh, January 4th, the day before the big runoff election. But who knows if it's going to be enough? The polls are all over the place. 
and we're all sitting on the edge of our seats. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of what you outline, and I think you've been tweeting a lot about this as well, being very vocal about how the systemic or the legitimate cheating actually is is worse than what's being hidden from us. Um, what you outline is more the, 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 the qualitative, not the quantitative. Is any of this going to be able to be proven? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, it'll if it's going to be proven at all, it'll happen years from now. Remember that when we had the Florida recount in 2000, it took them an entire year to go through all the ballots in the state and find out exactly how many votes George Bush won and Al Gore won under a variety of different counting scenarios. That took a year. There's just not enough time to do the kind of forensic analysis that conservatives are demanding. It just isn't enough time. The country does not uh, change its election days, its inauguration days. We don't sit around waiting for this. Basically, an election is the best guess. And I know that's frustrating to hear, but that's basically how the system works. It's how it's always worked. The Electoral College exists precisely for that reason. We're not measuring the exact temperature of the electorate. We're getting an approximation. And whatever fraud happened might come up with evidence that, that proves it uh, over time. There is evidence. I mean, evidence is evidence, but evidence isn't proof. There's, there's a distinction that's very important. And the Electoral College has voted. That's the end of it. Uh, there's this process of certification that's going to mm -hmm. go on in January in Congress. That's really a formality. It only becomes important if no candidate has uh, a majority in the Electoral College. Then the House of Representatives does have an, a more important role to play because they can cast a vote for president. But in this situation, I think all of the energy being directed toward January 6th and the certification of results and all that, I think it's worse than wasted because not only is it distracting from Georgia, where the real fight is. Mm -hmm. But when Republicans are once again disappointed, as they will be on January 6th, there's going to be a lot of uh, motivation that collapses. There's going to be uh, infighting and uh, people blaming each other and picking on one another. I mean, I don't think it's it's even uh, productive to, to be proceeding in this way. I mean, we've got to pick ourselves up and move forward. It's a new year. There are going to be some new challenges. And yes, there will be a new administration. It is impossible for Trump to overturn the results, even if it's sort of theoretically possible in some universe of probabilities. Mm -hmm. Country would reject it. Uh, at least half the country would basically prove to be ungovernable if Trump were to come back for a second term under these conditions. Right. So I think we have to put the past in the past and focus on the future. And right now, there's a really uh, extreme danger that Democrats will take over the right. uh, Senate and then run the entire Congress. Uh, they will then erase Trump's successful legacy in foreign policy and national security and uh, many other areas as well. They will begin to pack the courts with liberal justices. There's all kinds of stuff they're going to do. And uh, they're also going to legalize nationally some of the abusive voting procedures that happened in particular states in this election. H.R. 1, Nancy Pelosi's electoral reform bill, was passed by the House, not passed by the Republican Senate, but it'll be passed by a Democratic Senate. Right. So uh, this is, you know, a time when we have to focus less, I think, on, on chasing voter fraud. And it really is a chase uh, that, that's, that, that leads nowhere. It doesn't, it doesn't lead to anywhere that would allow us to, to arrive at some kind of decision that would make the country better, that would even help the party. It's not going to happen on time, even if the proof is out there somewhere. And, and that's just where we are. I mean, and, and as adults, we have to recognize, you know, what we call kids sometimes. Sometimes life isn't fair, but you have to move on. You have to make the best of it. So what from from yours, and I call this segment, you know, from where I sit, because I think you do have a very unique perspective from a micro and macro um, look at, at the nation and what we're going through. What is um, your, you know, what what's your advice to the GOP January 5th, 6th, and for the next four years? 
Well, my advice right now is people need to get over the presidential election. I'm sorry if that sounds harsh, but I, I'm, I'm a very big Trump supporter, but I'm also a grown up and I'm an American citizen. And I think we have to leave the past in the past. The advice is to focus on the next, next task ahead. I live in California. We don't have a hope really of having a Republican administration anytime soon, maybe never again in my lifetime. Okay. But I do have a very uh, big stake in the future of the country. Mm -hmm. And it's very important to me that if California is going to be governed by the radical left, that the rest of the country is not. And that there exist states like Georgia, uh, like some of the other states that have chosen Republican leadership, that there exist states that show how to run a, uh, an economy properly, that show how to achieve inclusivity and non-racism without having to resort to extreme uh, wokeness and cancel culture. It's important to me to have states that obey the constitution, to have policies right. that prioritize economic growth, not redistribution. It's important to have clean government, not a government that's controlled by left-wing unions and interest groups. I mean, it's really important that the country be run well and that there exist islands of conservatism in other states. Georgia is at risk of going blue and partly because of its own success. Georgia has been mm -hmm. so successful economically under largely Republican leadership that a lot of people have moved there from other states, right. especially black people. Black Americans are leaving the Democrat-run cities and moving south in a reversal of the great migration of the 20th century mm -hmm. because southern states have right-to-work laws because they have right. fewer regulations and growing economies, better opportunities. Um, we, we don't want to see that disappear. So, so I think uh, from where I sit here in California, the task is firstly to try to save one or both of those Georgia Senate seats and then to focus on protecting President Trump's legacy going forward as Democrats try to dismantle it, primarily in foreign policy. I mean, right. the Obama-Biden administration nearly destroyed the Middle East and it took Trump to save it. And, and it's going to take a grassroots conservative movement to protect it from being destroyed again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, we'll have to leave it there. But Joel, Thank we invite you. you to come back with us. You are a wealth of information. And I encourage you all to grab his book, Neither Fair Nor Free, and follow him on Twitter for uh, little snippets of brilliance, as he always has. Thank you so much, Joel. Happy New Year to you and your family. You. And hopefully we'll talk to you very soon. Thanks, Lisa. I appreciate it. And Happy New Year to all our followers. We appreciate you and we wish you a happy, healthy and prosperous 2021. And we look forward to seeing you in the new year. To follow our podcast, go to youtube.com slash Lisa Deftari. And to sign up for our daily top 10, you can go to foreigndesknews.com. Happy New Year to all.